Well, good morning, Highland Park. How is everybody? It's uh, so good to be with you again for week two of uh, the Oneness Initiative. Many of you have been going through the uh, Oneness devotional booklet. Uh, you've been uh, talking with family, friends, small groups, uh, discussing, praying, and we're so thankful for what God is doing and will be doing through us, in us, uh, for a little while. Last week, we began with this really simple acknowledgement. We have a oneness problem. Uh, ethnically, generationally, socioeconomically, I, I mean, there's all kinds of divisiveness that's happening um, in families, in uh, churches, in uh, communities, in countries. However, what, what began as this great divide in the garden will one day end in a city. The new Jerusalem coming down, the new heavens, the new earth, when Jesus fully reigns and when we are with him for eternity, that there will be no more divide, that we will be one with him and with each other. But until that day comes, we long to work together. And last week, we began just kind of trying to lay this biblical foundation for oneness, for unity. And we looked at John 17 and Jesus' prayer. Jesus pleads for the disciples and for all who are far off, that's us, to be one. And he prays for oneness. And today, we're going to continue that study in the book of Ephesians. And really what we're going to do today is just make a mad dash through the all six chapters of Ephesians because I want you to have this bird's eye view of what God is doing and telling the church at Ephesus there. We think it's so important. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and be finding your place there. But as we go through this series, we don't want to ignore the elephants in the room. I mean, we want to talk about difficult subjects. Uh, we want to talk about them with lots of care and sensitivity and not just be brash in that. But that's one of the reasons I really appreciate Benjamin Watson. Uh, tight end, uh, had, uh, last played for the uh, Ravens. He was hurt this last season. But somebody who, more important than an NFL player, is a Christian who loves the Lord, loves his family, loves people. And he writes with tons of clarity about the issue of racial reconciliation. And he wrote a book called Under Our Skin. And if I could maybe recommend one book to you as you're uh, going through this series, if you want to read something else, pick this book up. It's the one. Uh, I love it and have read it, been going back through it, and uh, you can find it just about anywhere. Uh, but I want to encourage you. I just want to read an excerpt from that book kind of to launch us off uh, this morning. And so... Uh, just so you understand the context uh, in the book, he's, he's uh, retelling a conversation that he's had with his friend Chris. And Chris looks very different uh, than Watson uh, does, and uh, different backgrounds, different cultures, different skin color, the whole thing. And they're having this conversation together. So when I say I for a little bit here, I'm talking about Watson kind of from his perspective. It begins with Chris talking. Benjamin, I really do see things differently from you. And I get angry at what governmental policies are doing to white people like me who are trying to make ends meet. Tell me more, I replied. Okay, he said, this is nothing against you. You know I respect you. But I'm working so hard to provide for my family, and it's like the government is working against me. And I'll just say it, by preferential treatment to minorities. My son Kevin's college application was turned down, even though his grades and test scores were plenty high enough to get in. But we know someone who knows someone, and apparently there was a minority admissions quota thing. It just doesn't seem fair. 
and my job promotion was in the bag. It had been promised to me for months. At the last minute, I was told the promotion was on hold. Then a few days later, I was told I did not get it. It went to Lissa. She's a minority. And no accident, it's at a time when the company is talk about, talking about diversity. So you're steamed, I said. Yeah, I'm steamed. Again, I'm not saying I, I hate black people. It's not like that. But you're angry at us. No, not you, man, not you, but yeah, I'm angry. Another thing is I'm frustrated because of the taxes I pay that go to welfare. I see on the news some story about an African-American mother of three who is scamming the welfare system, saying she has more kids than she really does. So, like, I'm thinking, great, my memory is going, or my money is going to her deceitfulness and lazy lifestyle. Chris finished talking and looked over at me. What? I said. You want me to solve affirmative action and fix the welfare system? Would you? He said. I'll get right on it, but it might take me till the end of the week. No, really, what do you think? By the way, that's a great question that Chris asked right there. Really, what do, what do you think? Watson says, first, you, we, have to make sure we're talking truth. What are the facts? I really am sorry they have not worked out as you hoped, but at the same time, I wonder if all that you assume is true is really true. Yeah, maybe Kevin was passed over because of some affirmative action policy. I know that happens. But in this case, do you really know that for a fact? Is it possible that some other minority student had better grades? Not likely. Why? Because they're a minority? I did not say that, but you were thinking it. Maybe. Watson goes on. And about the promotion. Well, maybe it's true that you did not get the promotion because this other person was African-American. But maybe it was actually because she's a woman or just really good at her job. I'm just saying we tend to take things and automatically blame them on race. You're concerned about a minority mother scamming the welfare system, but just by sheer population numbers, there's far more white people on welfare than any other. That's a fact, and I imagine a few of them are scamming the system too. And I'm with you. I don't want my money being scammed. I pay taxes too. But my point is that you looked at all of these injustices that have been done to you, and you immediately assumed they're about racial preference. You're, you feel justified then in prejudice. <clears throat> Chris said, but I would never condone slavery. You know that. But it's my job now to pay for injustices of slavery back then? Watson said, agreed. It should not have to be like that. But I see it like this. If your family... African-American living in the 50s, you have no chance in American society. You would not be able, to get a better, be able to go to better schools. You'd be shut out of higher education. You couldn't get significant better paying jobs. Your family would have little chance. I know, Watson writes, stepping aside from the conversation, that Chris's frustration is real and runs deep. I know he doesn't want to be prejudiced, yet much of his anger has been aimed at African-Americans. I think sometimes things happen in the news and it becomes easy for him to jump to his position and feel confirmed in his attitudes. And minorities can do this too. We can also be living room racist. We too sit in our homes in front of the TV spouting out frustration. We too harbor attitudes and jump to racial conclusions when something happens. The racial divide is about the reality people see. Different sides of the equation believe it's their view of reality which is true. Chris later said, we had talked so much about his side of things, he wanted to hear mine. 
So I told him, here's why I feel how I feel. It's because I remember someone calling my sister the N-word when we were in grade school. It's because of the stares and the shadowing and the hollow may I help yous that my wife receives when she shops at high-end stores in an area where apparently she's not supposed to be. It's because whenever I watch news of African Americans breaking the law, they're called fatherless thugs. But when a white boy kills nine people at a Bible study, he's said to have mental problems. And like you, Chris, I yell at the TV sometimes too. Well, there you go. (laughs) I I probably said a few things that you've thought before, or at least heard before, and I think it's just okay for us in a loving, gentle, sensitive way to bring this stuff out and just say, yeah, there's lots of divisions out there. There's lots of people feeling different things about each other. And I'll tell you that Highland Park desperately desires to bring people together and to love people and to be a place where people young and old and of all different ethnicities can come and be loved by each other and find love in God. And the big divide at the time of Jesus was Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't the only divide, but it was a really big one. And I just want to be honest with you today. So what we're talking about then and today is not apples to apples. It's not all the same. But there's some pretty incredible principles we can learn today about how we see this division back then. And I don't know if there's a book in the Bible that speaks more adequately about this topic than the book of Ephesians. So I told you that's where we're going and that's where we're headed. And I'm going to read a lot of text today and I want to encourage you to read along with me, uh, to think along with me. But let's just begin by talking about the city of Ephesus. It was a large, diverse, uh, influential city. And when Paul first arrived, he finds these people that don't quite understand the full gospel. And so he teaches them, which leads uh, them to say, well, we need to be baptized. So he baptizes them. And then he stays there and teaches for another two years. So he loves these people. Acts 19.10 says, all the Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. Did you get that? It was a multi-ethnic church in Ephesus. Later in Jerusalem, Paul gave a speech to this Jewish crowd, and it was going just fine until, listen to this, then the Lord said to me, Paul is saying, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. You know, Paul was in prison the rest of his life. That was the last free day he had was when he said this. I mean, he was on a ship for a while, but imprisoned, shipwrecked, ended up in a prison, ended up in courtrooms, ended up under house arrest. He was in prison the rest of his life. So when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he's thinking about this diverse church. And he's thinking about, I was arrested, and I've been arrested the rest of my life because of what I wanted to do with them. And when he wrote the letter to, F- to the Ephesians, he was in prison probably in Roman house arrest. And so Paul is thinking about the outsiders. He's thinking about the Gentiles, those who are far away. He's thinking about what the church should be. And Ephesians chapter one begins with the most encouraging words you can ever hear. And for some of you, maybe it's really why you came here today was to hear this. God says, I love you. You were adopted. 
you're valued. There's nothing in this world that, that can uh, make me think less of you. I love you. I care for you. I want you to come to me. These beautiful words. And when you think about that, though, it's not just I came to you and I love you. When you read uh, the book of Ephesians, it's plural. You know, it's just read it as an oaky would. I love y'all. <laughs> y'all are adopted. Y'all are chosen. When you see the word you uh, in Ephesians, assume it's you all. And so it's not just that you one person are special and valued by God, but you all, everyone, valued by God. And that means a lot when it comes to this idea of oneness and unity. And so we get to chapter 2. Imagine being a Gentile and being told you're on the outside. God had made a way for Gentiles to come to him by following Jewish, Jewish regulations. And God had told the Israelites, be a light to the nations. And sometimes they were. But all too often... The Israelites and the, the Jewish people had actually put barriers and made it difficult for people to come in. And so imagine being the person who's on the outside and there's no way you can get in with God. You are kept out. And then listen to what chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 say. Think about what good news this is. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What a beautiful thing. What great news. There could be no better news than that. You would be running around telling your friends and your family, we can be one with God. We aren't the outsiders. God cares for us. Verse 16 adds, reconciling both groups to God. Jesus is the hope of reconciliation. He's the only hope we have with reconciliation. And reconciliation means making peace between two parties. So it's making peace between people and God. And then it's making peace between people and each other. And as a church, we need to be reconciled and ministers of reconciliation. And Jesus is our only hope. And whether it's a, 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 an unbeliever to God who finds Christ, whether it's Jew to Gentile, whether it's a guy in India to Pakistani, they don't like each other very much, whether it's majority culture to minority culture, whether it's Ukrainian to Russian, whatever it is, wherever you go on the globe, you will find divisiveness, and Jesus is the hope of reconciliation to bring people together under the umbrella of Christ. Paul reveals then what he calls the great mystery this great mystery he talks about. What, what's the great mystery, Paul? Tell us. What's the great mystery? And he reveals it really clearly. Uh, he does several times, but in chapter 3, verse 6, uh, he just says it as plain as he can. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. Everyone who accepts Christ is included Everyone. It's not two churches. It's not the Jewish church and the Gentile church. It's one. One church. One family. One body. That's what God's after. But how in the world can this be? I mean, how can we really accomplish that? Let's just think realistically. Even in our country, think about the divides that we have. I mean, we got some baggage that we're carrying around. 
When we go through our day, we've got all of this baggage. Part of that baggage is 200 years of slavery and 100 years of Jim Crow laws. That's a lot of baggage to carry. It's guilt, it's shame, it's hurt, it's all of that. It's baggage. We've got all of this baggage with uh, rich and poor and living in different places and we've got this baggage with generational divides. All of this hurt that we carry, all of this shame that we carry, all of this anger that we carry, how in the world can the church be one? God doesn't take long to answer. Look what Paul writes, chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. How do we do this? Christ. Can't do it on our own. There's no meeting. There's no conference that can do it without the power of Christ who can do way more than we ever imagined. How can we be reconciled with all the baggage, with the baggage in your family, with the baggage in your community, with the baggage in our country, with the baggage in churches? How can people be reconciled? Because God does way more, immeasurably more than anything we can ask or imagine. Christ is our hope. Did you see the next verse? The very next verse, chapter 4. We're back to our memory verse. By the way, you got six weeks and counting to have this memorized. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, every single effort, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Will you read these last couple of verses with me? There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the hope, that we can be one. The next part of... Ephesians talks about some practical help for relationships and, and how, how do we do this. And then we get to Ephesians chapter 6. And it teaches this really important principle that's crucial for our desire for oneness. Because Ephesians 6 says, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, rulers, principalities of this dark world. In other words, your battle, your enemy is not clothed in skin. It's not a human being. It's not an organization. It's not a political party. Your enemy, your real enemy, is Satan, period. That's it. And any time you believe that some other person is your enemy, 
the real enemy has already won. He, he's, already, he's already, as soon as Satan divides us, as soon as Satan makes me believe that one of you is my enemy, that somebody else out there is my enemy, he's won. He's beaten me. Because that's exactly what he wants us to think. When Dylan Roof walked into the church in South Carolina and was warmly accepted and yet still pulled out a gun and killed nine African-American members of that church who were just there to read their Bibles and study and pray and welcome whoever came in. In the pictures, you know, he has waving the Confederate flag and pictures of the apartheid South Africa and uh, all of these kind of symbols that realized his whole life he'd been filled with some sort of hatred. And even after the trial, he really maintained that. But two days Two days after the shooting, people from that church, people who had lost uh, parents and children and brothers and sisters, do you remember what they said? It was on the news. They said, we want people to know that we forgive him. How do you do that? In Egypt, several weeks ago, bombs blow up churches in Cairo. Dozens of people killed there was a, a news anchor who uh, was known to not be kind to the Christians, and yet he's reporting, and he hears the people say uh, from those churches, we forgive the people who organized these attacks. And his response is, the people in those churches are made of steel. How do they do that? We have missionaries at Highland Park Supports who have had close close friends, gunned down. And you know what they've said? We forgive. How do they do that? I'll tell you how people forgive like that because they know who their real enemy is. They know it's not a person who pulled the trigger. They know it's, it's not somebody who planned a terrorist scheme. The real enemy is Satan. And unless we realize that, we can't forgive people as Christ has commanded us to forgive you can dislike someone's politics. You can dislike their character. You can dislike their words and their actions. You can vote against them. You can march the streets and protest against them. You can hope that their uh, affiliation never wins anything and never influences anyone. Uh, you can be a police officer and arrest someone. You can be a judge and sentence someone to life in prison. You can do all of those things under the umbrella of Christ. But what you can't ever do is say, that person is my enemy, my real enemy on this planet. It's only Satan. Church, I, I want to tell you, this is your enemy. But these two people are not. This is your enemy. But th these people are not. This is your enemy. But this is 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 not. This is your enemy. We have to know our enemy. We have to know. And when we declare someone our enemy, what does it look like to win? Well, you step on them. You defeat them. You crush them. And we get a picture of how Jesus sees the world. 
To borrow some helpful words from Ozark professor Shane Wood, the cross of Jesus reveals who our real enemy is. You know how Christ defeated the real enemy? You know how he did it? Because uh, his weapon was the cross. His armor was a crown of thorns. His ammunition was blood. His operations manual was truth and righteousness. And his battle cry was forgiveness. That's the kingdom you've been called to come and stand beside, to fight with this kingdom. But the fight looks very different than what we're used to. Instead, it's sacrifice, it's selflessness, it's giving. You can't be my enemy. There's nothing you can do to be my enemy. Oh, I, I might give in, I, I might lose sight, but the truth is you can't be my enemy because you aren't Satan and only Satan can be my enemy and I can't be your enemy and we can't, be, we can't have another enemy that wears flesh and blood that walks around on this earth as a human being. Only Satan is our enemy. And if we can wrap our minds around that, just maybe we can find what it means to be one. Maybe we can really walk together in unity, knowing we have one common enemy, only one. Ephesians comes full circle. It begins with, you all are loved. You all are adopted. You all are chosen. And here's how it ends. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Because Jesus died for us, we can have this undying love that doesn't make any sense. That even though we've been persecuted and beaten down and kicked, we continue to only fight with the cross by dying to ourselves, lifting others up loving the Lord. And if you've never been made one with God, if there's a separation between you and God because of the sin in your life, then the only way is Jesus to be reconciled. And we wanna call you to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. This morning, we would be glad for you to come and say, I believe and I wanna be reconciled to God and I'm ready to be baptized to die to my old self be brought new to commit to walk in this new way as an outsider for what this world sees but an insider to God's family we want to welcome you to do that there'll be some folks up front who would be glad to pray with you during this next song you can come and ask for prayer or to talk and even once the service is done today maybe just when people are leaving if you want to come up here and visit you're welcome to do that as well would you stand and let me pray for us God, help us to see our real enemy, our only enemy. We pray that would make all the difference in the world. We pray that we can be unified. We pray we can repent. We can put down our weapons in which we're attacking other people. You made those people. You love those people. You care for those people. Lord, help, help us to love them like you do. God, for anybody who needs to be reconciled with you, we pray today would be the beginning of a brand new journey for them, walking unified with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.